Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Sarah Krostick from Virginia Commonwealth University talking about surgical treatment of male infertility. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Hello, everyone. I'm Claire de la Calle, UCSF urology resident. Uh, we're happy to welcome today Dr. Krastek um, from UVA. Thank you so much for being here today. She's going to talk to us about surgical management of male infertility. Thanks, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, thanks to everybody who's tuning in, and also thank you to the lecture series organizing committee for establishing this platform for our education. It's Pretty amazing to be able to come together like this. Uh, again, I'm Sarah Krostek um, with VCU, affiliated with UVA, and um, I'm going to be talking to you today about the surgical management options for male infertility, which uh, follows closely on the heels of Dr. Smith's lecture earlier this week about the workup and uh, management of male uh, infertility as well. Um, I have no disclosures. Um, We'll start by going over a brief introduction uh, and review of male fertility issues. Again, since you had a, a very thorough um, background on this from Dr. Smith earlier this week, and then go into the various surgical options that we have for treating um, male infertility. So um, we know that male fertility requires a complex coordination of both hormonal and structural pathways and infertility can arise due to abnormalities along any point of any of these pathways, whether it's um, in the HPG axis with uh, production of gonadotropins and testosterone, whether it's in the testicle itself um, with intratesticular uh, testosterone levels or spermatogenesis, or anywhere on the excurrent um, ductal system, which includes the epididymis, the vasa, uh, the seminal vesicles, the ejaculatory ducts, and even the bladder neck and the urethra. Um, so like Dr. Smith talked about earlier this week, um, he kind of went through the whole workup of male fertility and uh, medical management options. And um, those medications are primarily aimed at balancing um, gonadotropins and testosterone and estrogen levels trying to optimize spermatogenesis, um, but sometimes surgical interventions are necessary um, in cases where these medications are insufficient or if there's a known structural abnormality um, that exists or in some cases to um, let us uh, diagnose an underlying pathology. Um, and I just wanted to mention that I think that the most comprehensive reviews for residents on this topic are both the core curriculum on the surgical management of male infertility written by Landon Trost, and then the Campbell's chapter um, written by Mark Goldstein on surgical management of male infertility. Both of those are great reference points for you guys, and you can refer back to those. Um, but my talk today is kind of going to loosely follow the core curriculum because I think it's laid out in a very logical way, um, easy to follow, and um, pretty much touches on all of the treatment options that we have. So um, moving on into diagnostic procedures. These um, can include percutaneous or open testicular biopsies um, and can also include vasography and transrectal ultrasound, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail in, a, in another few slides. 
In general, diagnostic procedures are done at the time of sperm retrieval, uh, but they are beneficial because they can provide pathologic diagnoses in some conditions and help us to understand an etiology for um, decreased sperm in the ejaculate. Um, and mostly they're done to distinguish non-obstructive azospermia or NOA from obstructive azospermia in patients who have an equivocal exam or um, endocrine profile. You don't really need to do diagnostic procedures in patients who clearly have non-obstructive azospermia in the setting of an elevated FSH and testicular atrophy, or if it's clearly obstructive azospermia, um, you know, they have bilateral absence of the VAS and normal FSH, or even a history of a surgical procedure um, that has a high likelihood of having caused an iatrogenic basal or epididymal injury. The other thing that I think is important is to have a, a good andrology lab on hand um, with an embryologist in the OR to help you analyze freshly obtained tissue, um, both to cryopreserve any sperm that are found at the same time and also to help guide additional sampling if you don't find sperm on your initial biopsy. Um, and some of the percutaneous approaches uh, that can be taken would be either a testis aspiration or a testis biopsy. Uh, testis aspiration uses a 23 gauge needle or angia cath uh, attached to a syringe um, an aspiration is the least invasive option that we have, but the yield is pretty low. Um, it really yields very few tubules with poorly preserved architecture. Um, a testis biopsy using a larger gauge needle um, gives you more tubules with intact architecture, but with the larger needle comes the increased risk of injury to the testis. And if you have a high suspicion for NOA, then um, if you're doing a diagnostic procedure for um, cryopreservation at the same time, the yield of sperm with a percutaneous aspiration or biopsy is significantly lower than when it's done with a microtestes. So we usually don't recommend percutaneous um, testis biopsy or aspiration if you have a strong suspicion for NOA. The complications from these procedures are things like hematoma, which can happen to varying degrees. Um, as well as inadvertent epididymal obstruction if um, you inadvertently pass the needle into the epididymis. Um, testicular tissue can also be obtained with an open testis biopsy. The, this can either be done with just a small incision through the skin over the testis under local anesthesia or using a microsurgical approach after you deliver the testis, which is getting more into a, a tessie, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, basically, you open the tunica albuginea and just um, gently squeeze the testis to extrude a small amount of tubules and then excise those. Um, and send them off for pathology. Um, you can use a microbipolar to help cauterize any small vessels that you have that are bleeding at the time. You want to try to minimize blood in the field because um, when the embryologists are looking for sperm in the specimen, red blood cells can really make that a little more challenging. Um, so hemostasis is important. Um, Another thing that you can do is if you are doing a biopsy and not doing extraction at the same time, you can um, mark your biopsy site using a permanent suture like a nylon to help you identify that location of sperm is found there if you need to come back to that testis for extraction and ART in the future.
Um, like I mentioned, additional diagnostic procedures include vasography and transrectal ultrasound, but we'll talk about those in a little more detail um, in a couple of slides um, as we use them more for ejaculatory duct obstruction and, and uh, reconstruction. So moving on to procedures that we can do to optimize spermatogenesis. Uh, this is pretty much limited to varicocelectomy. Um, as Dr. Smith discussed earlier this week, varicoceles are very common. They can be found in about 15% of the general population, but are more common in men presenting with fertility issues. They can be found in 30 to 40% of men presenting with primary infertility and up to 80% of men with secondary infertility, which speaks to um, the fact that we think that this can cause progressive decline in testicular function over time. Um, we think that varicoceles um, result in testicular hypofunction by causing relative testicular hyperthermia and can alter the countercurrent exchange molecules and lead to the accumulation of metabolites and reactive oxygen species, ultimately causing impairment in lytic cell and Sertoli cell functioning. Um, we're all pretty familiar with how we diagnose varicoceles, but just as a review, um, clinical varicoceles are um, graded as grade one, two, or three. Um, they can be palpable with valsalva for a grade one. A grade two is palp uh, palpable without a valsalva maneuver, and grade three is visible on your exam. Um, the timing and necessity of repair is still a little bit controversial, but we'll talk about some indications for when you would want to repair these. Um, and in general, repairing a subclinical varicocele or one that's only found incidentally on ultrasound is not indicated in most cases. Uh, the one caveat I would say to that is that if you are repairing a clinical varicocele in a, in a patient who has subfertility and they also have a contralateral subclinical varicocele on ultrasound, um, you can consider repairing those in those situations because some research has shown that when you repair a subclinical contralateral varicocele, um, the improvement in semen parameters is greater than just with repairing the clinical varicocele alone. Um, so when do we repair these? Um, in general, for adolescents, um, you may want to consider a varicocelectomy if the patient has a clinical varicocele and they also have testicular size discrepancy or an abnormal semen analysis. Um, if adolescents have a normal testicular exam, you can alternatively offer to obtain a semen analysis and follow them with yearly exams with a semen analysis intermittently. Um, in adults, uh, you can consider varicocelectomy if they have an abnormal semen analysis, whether or not they're trying to conceive, if they have documented infertility. And also, um, you can consider doing a varicocele repair to optimize spermatogenesis in men with azospermia or oligospermia, especially if they're already planning to um, undergo ART. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little more detail as well. But basically, um, varicocele repair has been shown to um, lead to return of sperm in the ejaculate for some men with azospermia in certain cases. Um, and we also know that varicocele uh, repair improves your chances of natural conception, your sperm count, motility, uh, improves a multitude of other uh, semen parameters, um, and like I said, can allow for your return of sperm to the ejaculate and can increases the chance, increase the chance of finding sperm on a microtestine in patients with NOA. So I'll um, 
reasons that support performing a varicocele for these uh, performing a varicocele repair for these patients. Complications can include um, hydrocele formation postoperatively um, or varicocele recurrence, and sometimes injury to the testicular artery. Um, and just some pearls for the operative repair of varicoceles. In general, we don't recommend a scrotal approach, and I'll show you a slide next that um, shows the, the different surgical approaches, but a scrotal approach is not recommended because the veins are branched so much at that point that it really makes um, the repair very difficult um, and also increases the likelihood of injuring the arterial supply. Um, I also recommend using a Doppler during surgery to help you identify an arterial signal and avoid injuring the artery, um, the testicular artery at that time. And some people will use papaverin. Um, you can irrigate the field with that to cause vasodilation to help you Doppler an arterial signal. Um, practically, sometimes that can cause some like superficial tissue changes and can make the feel a little bit harder to visualize. So I kind of reserve that for if I'm having difficulty Dopplering a signal. Um, and the microscopic subinguinal approach has been shown to be the best way to do these. Um, so the various approaches that exist, you can do a, um, a radiographic, like a percutaneous embolization of a varicocele. Um, you can repair these laparoscopically um, through an intraperitoneal approach. You can take a retroperitoneal approach and ligate the gonadal vein high that way. Um, and then also described our inguinal and subinguinal approaches. And like I said, when you look at all of the um, outcomes in terms of pregnancy rates and complications, whether it be recurrence or other complications, microscopic subinguinal varicocelectomy has been shown to have the best outcome. Um, so practically, how do you do this surgery? Um, you make a small incision, you deliver the spermatic cord through the incision. Um, I pass a Penrose drain loosely underneath just to add, act as a background um, to operate on. Then you open the spermatic um, fascia, identify the vessels and dissect down onto the vessels. Um, there are various ways to ligate these and there hasn't really been any evidence in support of one way over another, but you can um, dissect out the vein and um, ligate with permanent sutures and cut the vein in between. You can clip them. Um, I like to use permanent sutures because that gives you the ability to put the suture on tension once you've got it around the vein and then make sure that you can still Doppler a pulse to make sure you haven't also gotten the artery, which a lot of times arterial branches can be very closely associated with these veins. Um, if the vein is really small, I'll just pass a single suture and tie that down without transecting if, if I haven't been able to create a big window. Um, but uh, the outcomes for that are, are pretty good. Okay, so moving on to procedures that we have to um, optimize the amount of sperm that are in the ejaculate. As we go through this a little bit, we'll talk about kind of the diagnosis and workup for patients um, who have low ejaculate uh, volume or decreased sperm in the ejaculate, and then some of the surgical options that we have to fix problems that are uh, underlying causes of this. In your workup, it's important to uh, distinguish an obstruction from a retrograde ejaculation or aperistalsis of the vaso or absent admission, which can all kind of give you the same clinical picture. Um, obstruction can be caused by a multitude of different things, a lot of which are listed here. 
and obstruction of the ejaculatory ducts can present with varying symptoms. Um, patients may report pain in the perineum or the scrotum, uh, pain with ejaculation, hematospermia, low ejaculatory volume, and even urinary symptoms can be reported. During the workup of um, these conditions, a transrectal ultrasound is useful to help you um, visualize etiology, whether it be obstructing stones or cysts, uh, dilated seminal vesicles. Um, if you see a midline prosthetic cyst that is greater than 0.1 cc's, that can be obstructing things. Dilated seminal vesicles um, are uh, found whenever the uh, AP diameter is greater than 1.5 centimeter. Um, dilated ejaculatory ducts are defined as diameter greater than 2.3 millimeters. And also, also useful during a transrectal ultrasound, um, you can do concurrent um, procedures as well. So a lot of times when you're doing a truss, I mean, it may just be an initial diagnosis, but you can also set yourself up to do a, a turret or some other procedure at the same time. So um, you can do a concurrent seminal vesicle aspiration to look for sperm. Um, if you are planning to do a turret, um, it may be beneficial to ask the patient to ejaculate the morning before the procedure, which can kind of load the seminal vesicles with as many sperm as they're gonna have so that when you aspirate the seminal vesicles, you can cryopreserve any sperm that you find at the same time. Um, if you find greater than three sperm per high-powered field that is consistent with an ejaculatory duct obstruction, and you know that if you see sperm on your aspiration, then you do have at least one um, patent vasin epididymis. If you don't see any sperm um, on aspiration, and there's other things to suggest um, an obstruction, you may also have a secondary epididymal obstruction. Um, additionally, if you're setting yourself up to do a TURED, you can uh, concurrently inject the seminal vesicles with dye um, or contrast. Um, Indigocarmine is a little bit less spermatotoxic than methylene blue, so if you're um, uh, cryopreserving sperm at the same time, you may want to use endocarmine, but either will give you um, adequate visualization during the turret. So that, you know, if you inject the dye and you do your truss and you see a resectable lesion, then you can do a transurethral section in the same setting. Um, this is just some images of what you may see uh, abnormality-wise when you're doing your transrectal ultrasound. This is a picture of the prostate here, and you see this midline mullerian cyst that can be causing obstruction. And then um, this image here is just showing you what it looks like when you have dilated seminal vesicles. The bladder's here, um, and you can see that it would be easy for you to put a needle through the transrectal ultrasound probe and directly into these SVs and aspirate that way. Uh, vasography is also a um, procedure that we can do to help us with our workup. In general, vasography is only done at the time of a formal reconstruction to help you identify the level of the obstruction. Otherwise, we don't really do these in isolation because they can in and of themselves cause um, damage to the vasa uh, and results in um, uh, stricture or uh, loss of blood supply to that area. Um, so 
basically the way that a vasogram works is that if you if you don't know where the obstruction is you deliver the testis through a high scrotal incision you open the vas at the junction of the convoluted vas to the straight vas and then um, gently irrigate the abdominal ends um, using a 24 gauge angiocath and a one milliliter of saline or you can inject indigocarmine um, diluted and lactated ringers um, if you inject dye, you put a catheter in the bladder, and if you see blue coming out of the catheter, then you know that DAS is patent. Um, you can alternatively use like a 2-O-proline and advance that into the abdominal end of the VAS until you meet resistance, and that can help you identify the level of the stricture as well. Um, the traditional um, fluoroscopic vasogram is rarely done anymore, but the way you do that is similar. You inject um, contrast dye, put a catheter in the bladder and put the catheter on tension so you don't get reflux into the bladder and that should light up um, the uh, structures like you can see here. Um, when you do your vasogram, um, if you have um, an obstruction of the ejaculatory ducts, um, you can inject the dye into the vasa um, through your vasotomy at that time to help facilitate a turret in the same setting if you're going to do that. That's, that's pretty rare that you would do that in that setting. Um, if you do a vasogram and both vasa light up after unilateral injection, that indicates that they're emptying into a single cavity, usually a midline ejaculatory duct cyst. If you have an obstruction in the inguinal region, then you can either perform a VV in that area or a cross transeptal VV, which has been reported that it's very um, technically challenging. If your vasogram is kind of blind ending just before it gets to the ejaculatory ducts, you likely have a congenital partial absence of the vas, and in that case, you're going to need to retrieve sperm for ART because you can't really reconstruct that. If when you make your vasotomy and you look at the fluid, you have sperm there and your vasogram is patent, then the patient probably has azospermia due to absent emission or absent peristalsis. Um, and then another pearl is that if you examine your testicular end fluid and you don't see any sperm there, but your vasogram shows that the abdominal end is patent, then you can at that point completely transect the vas and proceed with a VE. Um, so treatment options, um, when we um, treat ejaculatory duct obstruction, um, so I just mentioned this here, if they have an ejaculatory duct obstruction and also an epididymal obstruction on examination of your uh, vasal fluid, then that is pretty impossible to reconstruct. So at that point, you would recommend retrieval and ART. Um, if you have an ejaculatory duct obstruction, that can be managed one of two ways. Um, you can either uh, do dilation using a ureteroscope and a percutaneous transluminal angioplasty balloon. Um, that will at least keep them open long enough to hopefully allow for return of sperm to the ejaculate so that you, they can achieve a pregnancy, though they may have restenosis over time. Alternatively, you can proceed with a turid. Uh, Dr. Ramasani has a really nice video that was published in Fertility and Sterility in 2017. I put the link here for you guys if you want to um, look that up, but it walks you through what it's like to do a turid. Um, basically, once you've uh, injected dye into the seminal vesicles through your transrectal ultrasound, 
um, you resect the viramontanum until you start to see blue effluxing, and that's how you know you've gotten uh, into the ejaculatory ducts and have unobstructed at that level. Um, this procedure has varying rates of return of sperm to the ejaculates and very high complication rates. Um, most patients will have reflux of urine into the ejaculatory ducts, which can impair um, semen um, sperm parameters and can also lead to a chronic epididymokitis, whether it's just an irritative, like a chemical um, epididymokitis from the reflux of urine or infectious. They may have restenosis of this area, and some patients may experience post dribbling just from having created the cavity and you get pooling of urine in that area. Um, alternative uh, treatment options for returning sperm to the ejaculate would be um, more formal reconstructions. And I think that of all the surgical techniques that we're, most residents are aware of for treating male infertility, aside from maybe um, vasectomy, or sorry, um, a varicocelectomy, which is probably the most commonly performed, I think most people are familiar with the concept of a vasectomy reversal. Um, but occasionally a reconstruction is required for other um, etiologies other than a prior vasectomy. So patients who have had prior inguinal surgeries like hernia repairs with mesh, or scrotal surgeries like a hydrocelectomy or even an epididymal cyst excision, those can all lead to obstruction at various levels and may require reconstruction um, for those situations. With these pregnancy rates tend to be lower than patency rates because there's so many other factors that go into achieving a successful pregnancy. Um, and the other thing that I'll say is that there is a, a risk of restenosis following a reconstruction. So I'll counsel all of my patients um, preoperatively to consider banking either at, um, with an extraction at the time of the reconstruction or um, once they've had return of sperm to the ejaculate, they can bank that sperm at that time, kind of depending on the situation. In general, we use an operating microscope for these reconstructions um, and the incisions can be variable depending on the scenario. If the patient is post-vasectomy and uh, you think it's going to be straightforward, they have easily palpable defects, small defects in the um, location of the straight vas, then uh, you can usually get away with a small median rate incision. Um, if the location of the obstruction is not known, um, you can perform bilateral high scroll incisions and deliver the testicles through that area. Um, and those incisions can easily be extended towards the inguinal region if needed. Um, and then you can always start inguinally if you are pretty confident that the obstruction is at the level of the inguinal region. And if you are not sure whether you're going to have to do an EV or if you think there's a high chance that you'll have to do a vasoepididymostomy, then you can start with having the testicles delivered so that you um, save yourself that step down the road. Uh, if they're post-vasectomy, um, some history and physical exam things that are important to note. So you want to note their prior paternity status, the results of their post-vasectomy semen analysis, any history of testosterone use, um, the time it's been since they've had their vasectomy. Um, female partner information is also relevant and uh, I offer REI referral to all the female uh, partners if they want it. Um, and then also important to consider what method of contraception the couple wants to use going forward. On your exam, you want to note the presence of any sperm granulomas because um, those are good prognostic factors for having return of uh, sperm to the ejaculate and then the location of the defect in the vas. 
there's a nomogram out there that I like to use that also helps to predict the likelihood of whether the patient's going to require a vasoepididymostomy. And this takes into consideration the obstructive interval and then the presence of sperm granulomas as well. Um, it's important to note the obstructive interval because the uh, pregnancy rate drops to about 30% um, if the obstructive interval is over 15 years. Um, and just some statements from the AUA best practice statement on the management of um, uh, surgical management of male infertility. Um, if the obstructive interval is less than 15 years and the female partner has no fertility risk factors, then a microsurgical reconstruction is preferable. Um, it's uh, you know, least invasive. The female partner doesn't have to go through ART procedures and um, generally cheaper than any um, ART out there. Um, if the patient has an epididymal obstruction, then you can um, discuss with them the option of reconstructing that versus just proceeding with the retrieval kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. Technically, to do a vasovasostomy, um, like we talked about the uh, we talked about already the surgical approaches. Um, but in general, what you want to do is gently grab the vas above and below the level of the defect, dissect down to the vas, uh, mobilizing proximally and distally. You can isolate those areas using vessel loops um, and just try to avoid stripping any of the adventitia um, or the blood supply, which could result in stenosis of those areas after your repair. And then you transect the um, testicular side of the defect and examine the fluid. Um, this is a nice chart that you can look at that uh, shows kind of the decision making. So when you're examining the fluid intraoperatively, um, whether or not you see sperm and the type of fluid that you have returning from the testicular end will help you decide whether you need to proceed with a VV or a vasoepididymostomy. Um, so once you've transected the testicular side, you can grasp that using either a nerve clamp or the Goldstein clamp, um, and then you transect the abdominal end in a similar fashion. That's the point where you would perform your um, irrigation or your vasogram um, in that setting to make sure that the abdominal end is patent. And then you complete your anastomosis. Um, this gold standard is the two-layer approach. I think a lot of people have moved to a modified one-layer approach, which I'm showing you down here, because um, the modified one-layer has been shown to have equivalent patency and pregnancy rates um, and is faster and less expensive. So basically with the modified one-layer, you're gonna place um, six uh, full thickness uh, sutures and then inner, um, interspersed uh, seromuscular sutures to kind of complete your watertight anastomosis using either 9-0 or 10-0 nylons. You check your first semen analysis at six to eight weeks, and the um, patency rates are very high. Uh, also, pregnancy rates are very high as well, um, depending on uh, multiple factors. For a vasoepididymostomy, this is a more complicated procedure, um, and uh, per the AOA, best practice statements of VE should be performed by an expert in reproductive microsurgery. Um, if you're anticipating that you'll have to do a VE, just go ahead and deliver the testes through high scrotal incisions. Um, you um, also want to consider counseling the patients that um, 
afterwards the testes may ride a little higher because you have to suture um, in such a way that it takes your anastomosis off tension and just because of that the testes may be in a little bit higher position. There are multiple ways to do a VE. Um, you can do an end-to-end -end anastomosis, an end-to-side anastomosis, um, and then I think a lot of people are also moving towards this longitudinal intussusception vasoepididymostomy, um, which has been shown to have a lower failure rates and trends towards higher patency rates than an end-to-end -end or an end-to-side technique because you're basically intussuscepting the entire epididymal tubule into the lumen of the vas to create a very tight um, and patent anastomosis. Do this using two very small um, double arm tenno nylons, um, basically in and out through your, you know, you make an incision in the, um, a single epididymal tubule here, and then you place the sutures in the corresponding locations on the basal side and, and to susceptible it in there. And then you suture the adventitia um, to the tunica albuginea of the epididymis um, that way to keep everything off of tension. Um, so that's kind of it for reconstruction. Um, lastly, I wanted to talk about um, sperm retrieval techniques, uh, and this can include uh, electroejaculation, penile vibratory stimulation, which Dr. Smith touched on in his talk, as well as um, aspirations and extractions. Um, we talked a little bit about testicular aspiration uh, earlier in this talk, but we'll um, touch on that again here. Um, a lot of this information right here is courtesy of my partner, Dr. Smith Harrison, also an andrologist at VCU. Um, and I'm not going to get into the details of all the neuroanatomy of erections and ejaculation because that's way beyond the scope of this talk, but um, very briefly, um, penile vibratory stimulation and electroejaculation are indicated um, for patients with neurogenic and ejaculation. Um, which happens a lot in spinal cord injuries and can also be seen in patients with severe diabetes as well uh, and other uh, issues like that. Um, we also know, and I think is uh, interesting to keep in mind, that patients with spinal cord injuries are at higher risk for lots of things that can impact fertility, including hypogonadism, ED, ejaculatory dysfunction, and even abnormal semen quality. Um, in general, erections, um, psychogenic erections require an intact supraspinal input and thoracolumbar roots, and reflexogenic erections require an intact S2S4 sacral reflex arc, um, and then normal emission and anti-grade ejaculation require intact T10 to L2 and S2 to S4 segments. This algorithm here is nice to refer back to as just kind of a treatment algorithm for sperm retrieval in men with spinal cord injuries that you can um, take a look at. The way the um, penile vibratory stimulation works um, is by just placing this device on the penis and applying stimulation. This works well for spinal cord injuries that are T10 and higher because they have intact uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic pathways for ejaculation and penile dorsal nerves. Um, you want to, before doing this, ensure that they have a positive bulbocavernosis and hip flexor reflexes um, because that predicts the likelihood of this being successful. Um, and if they have an injury that's a T6 and higher, remember they're at risk for autonomic dysreflexia. Um, so you want to pre-treat them for autonomic dysreflexia. 
In addition, if you suspect that they have retrograde ejaculation, you can prep the bladder beforehand to optimize the bladder to receive the sperm that are ejaculated in a retrograde fashion so that you can extract healthy sperm uh, for cryopreservation. Um, Electroejaculation is more invasive. It requires a transrectal um, probe and um, this has a higher risk of retrograde ejaculation, so you may have that in, in your patients. Um, but the way this works is by directly transferring current to the prostatic and pelvic nerve plexuses. Um, the, in terms of the traditional sperm retrieval techniques, things like um, uh, epididymal sperm extraction and testicular extraction, um, so the AEA has a couple of best practice statements on sperm retrieval that we'll go over really quickly. Um, for patients who have obstructive or non-obstructive azospermia, uh, fresh or thawed cryopreserved sperm have the same fertilization and pregnancy rates. So the timing of sperm retrieval as it relates to oocyte retrieval should be based on local preference and expertise what support systems you have, um, and then patient factors as well. But um, in general, thawed sperm are the same as fresh sperm. The caveat to that is that um, you do lose about 50% of the viable sperm in a freeze-thaw cycle. So if your counts are very, very low, or if you suspect that they're gonna be very low, that's when you may wanna use a fresh um, cycle extraction um, so that you minimize the loss of if you have a very small number um, in that setting. Um, in the case of obstructive azospermia, there is no difference in ICSI outcomes when you're using sperm retrieved percutaneously or open um, or if it's from the epididymis or the testis. So in that setting, uh, if the patient has obstructive azospermia and you're retrieving sperm for ICSI, you can do it via any approach. Um, the numbers that you get in terms of retrieval through a percutaneous approach are lower, but in general, you still can get enough um, to proceed with ICSI. Um, it's just kind of a matter of costs associated with all the procedures, invasiveness, and, and then your local uh, support system and expertise. In the case of non-obstructive azospermia, like we discussed previously, um, an open surgical uh, sperm extraction is recommended. Um, the, there has been recently some question as to whether the microscope is as important as everybody says it is. Um, I think most people still advocate for the use of microscopic, um, a microtessy for patients with NOA. Uh, um, we'll talk a little bit about why that is. Um, before we get into that though, this. This came up um, during Dr. Smith's talk earlier this week about how do you optimize patients prior to uh, extraction because we do know that spermatogenesis is affected by testosterone levels. So it's logical to assume that if you improve your testosterone levels in men with testosterone deficiency, that would optimize spermatogenesis. And, and that is true to some degree. 
Um, the other things that are important preoperatively are genetic screening for looking for Y, micro, y chromosome microdeletions and karyotype prior to extraction because um, that will have an impact on whether or not you're going to be able to find sperm on an extraction. So for patients with azospermia or severe oligospermia, less than 5 million per mil, um, that's when you would want to consider these types of um, um, diagnostic tests. In terms of hormonal treatments, um, we talked a little bit about this uh, earlier this week, but um, there's not a lot of great evidence that these therapies help with idiopathic oligospermia in the absence of a testosterone deficiency. Um, some studies suggest that it, it may help um, improve sperm parameters, but um, it's difficult to say um, in the absence of testosterone deficiency. But there is a lot of evidence that if patients do have testosterone deficiency, treating with um, medications beforehand can improve sperm counts. This study conducted in 2013 was a prospective multi-institutional um, trial that randomized men with non-obstructive azospermia um, to undergo microtessy alone or to be optimized with uh, clomiphene citrate or uh, um, HCG or HMG or a combination of thereof prior to undergoing surgical intervention. And they were able to show that 10% uh, of the whole cohort that was treated did achieve return of sperm to the ejaculate um, prior to surgical intervention, which saved those patients from having to undergo an invasive procedure. So even though uh, the medical treatments may not get the counts high enough to allow for natural conception, it may improve guys who are severe oligo to um, have counts that are good enough to be candidates for intrauterine insemination or may um, you know, prevent the need for undergoing a surgical procedure and can, um, even if you still have to undergo a microtessie, can improve the rates of um, sperm retrieval with a, a microtessie. Um, and then lastly on this topic, Flanagan and Schlegel had a paper out earlier um, last year that um, looked at hormonal therapy and did say that even though there's limited high quality evidence and we don't really know the dose duration or type of treatment that's optimal, it does seem to help. Um, and then uh, a pre-microtessy varicoselectomy can improve um, sperm retrieval rates and um, return sperm to the ejaculate in some cases. This is a useful chart that just um, outlines kind of the advantages and disadvantages of the various sperm retrieval techniques. So basically we have um, the options for a microscopic epididymal sperm aspiration, a percutaneous epididymal sperm aspiration, a TESI, either um, whether it's um, uh, with or without the microscope, and then a percutaneous testicular sperm aspiration, which we talked about earlier. Um, Obtaining sperm from the epididymis is usually reserved for cases of obstructive azospermia. You can do this um, percutaneously under local anesthetic, which is the least invasive way, um, but has a higher risk of damaging the epididymis because you're just blindly passing a needle. A microscopic approach requires some microscopic skills, but is much more um, precise uh, because you can open a single tubule and uh, obtain enough uh, sperm for preservation that way. Um, 
Microtesis, uh, again, the microsurgical skills are required, um, but it can help to identify um, tubules that seem more likely to have sperm uh, and normal spermatogenesis in the cases of non-obstructed azospermia. And all this stuff you sort of have to consider um, the invasive nature of the procedures, the cost to the patient, the risk factors, and all of, and all of that sort of thing. Um, in general, to do a microtesty, you basically um, deliver the testis, open the testis, and examine the tubules. Um, when you're using a microscope, it's easier to identify these bigger dilated tubules that are more likely to have normal spermatogenesis and selectively give those off to the, hopefully you have an em uh, embryologist in the OR who can look at these tissues in real time and tell you um, whether they've got sperm and, and what the quality of that they think you have and whether or not you need to continue on in a, in a templated fashion looking for sperm. If you can't find sperm on one side, um, you can go to the other side, but some research has shown that if you, if you don't find sperm on one side, you only have an 8% chance of finding it on the other side, but it's still worth checking. Um, and then lastly, I put in one slide here um, to talk about uh, cryopreservation for prepubertal uh, patients. There's a clinical trial ongoing um, where you can uh, basically take an open testicular wedge biopsy um, and on this protocol a small segment of that is sent for histology and the rest is cryopreserved um, and this is indicated on this trial protocol for prepubertal boys who are undergoing gonadotoxic cancer treatments in animal models um, they have taken this cryopreserved tissue and autologously grafted it under the skin matured it and then harvested it and they were able to show normal spermatogenesis in this tissue that was preserved and uh, re-implanted and then sperm isolated from this tissue was then successfully used for ICSI and was able to generate a full-term live offspring. So um, very interesting and promising things for um, young boys who aren't able to give you um, an ejaculated specimen, don't have um, mature spermatogenesis. Um, so some hope for the future for those, uh, for those cases. Um, this here is just uh, the algorithm that is in the core curriculum that pretty much summarizes everything we talked about, um, kind of your flow for your decision-making process for everything that we've gone through. And then I just wanted to include this slide here um, for references for you guys. Um, the, there are a lot of good resources out here, particularly for residents without getting bogged down into the details uh, of the nitty-gritty for the for specialists, but um, the ASRM uh, and SMRU have a lot of good um, committee opinion documents, the core curriculum, which we've talked about, um, the Campbell's chapter, and then there's also um, an AUA best practice statement, which we touched on throughout the talk, and then um, an AUA update series on um, this as well. So um, I think that's all I have. I'm happy to take any questions that you guys Hey Sarah, great job. So I have been trying to answer some questions as they come up and then uh, combining others. So one of the questions that came up that's worth discussing is in uh, patients who are azospermic with a varicocele, 
what is your approach to them? Would you recommend uh, a varicocele repair at the time of microtessie, or would you stage the approach? Yeah, so I'd stage it. Um, you know, you get the standard workup just like you do for everybody. Um, uh, hormone panels, um, um, genetic screening, if that's indicated. And then, like I mentioned, um, even patients with azospermia who have undergone varicocele repair that was able to allow for return of sperm in the ejaculate to certain, um, in certain cases, um, and can also improve your retrieval rate if you have to go forward with Otessi. So I think that if, um, it, and it's all very complex, you have to really consider all the factors. You have to consider the female partner. So if there were anything on her end that would necessitate ART from the get-go, um, you can decide whether you want to put the male partner through a varicocele repair. Uh, anything you do to change um, sperm parameters is going to take three months or so, the, the life cycle of um, spermatogenesis, like Dr. Smith talked about earlier, for you to have a noticeable improvement. So um, whether it's starting clomiphene citrate or whether it's doing a varicocele repair, it's going to be at least three months until you're going to see the first indications that you've had benefits. So if time is of the essence, um, advanced maternal age or, or something like that, you, you can go straight to an extraction, but um, I think it's worth uh, giving them a shot at a varicocele repair if it has the opportunity to save them from a surgical procedure down the road. Staying on the topic of varicoceles, um, how would you approach a, a subclinical varicocele, or would you ever recommend a repair for one that is not palpable on exam? In general, no. Um, if they if if they have bilateral subclinical varicoceles, the evidence has not really shown that repairing those have much benefit. But like I mentioned, if the only caveat to that is if they have a clinical varicocele on one side and a subclinical varicocele on the other then repairing the subclinical varicocele in that setting can improve uh, sperm parameters beyond what you would see with just repairing the ipsilateral clinical varicocele. So that's the only time that I would recommend doing a, a repair of a subclinical varicocele. And then lots of stuff on varicoceles. Can you talk a little bit about your approach, uh, both diagnostic and uh, management options for a recurrent varicocele? That's like I said, the clinical exam can be a little bit harder to distinguish. Um, so if the patient has had a varicocele, if they feel like they had some improvement on their exam before and now they feel like it's back or they had pain that went away that's now back again, um, I often will get a Doppler ultrasound of the, um, or a duplex ultrasound of the scrotum in that setting to see. Um, but uh, those ultrasound findings are pretty variable from institution to institution, so you have to have a good idea of what criteria your radiologists are using to diagnose a varicocele. Um, so you may be able to detect a recurrence based on uh, flow and, and diameter and that sort of thing. Um, and then the options for repairing that sort of depend on what approach they had before. Um, you can, if if they've had an attempt at a subinguinal 
before, you can certainly take that approach again and maybe find a couple of vessels that you know weren't tied off the first time. Um, if they've had multiple recurrences, then sometimes that's the time that I will recommend doing a, an embolization. Um, I don't recommend that from the baseline because the recurrence rates and the outcomes aren't as good. But um, if you really can't, you know, you seem to get all of the veins taken care of um, through a, a subinguinal incision, then they can knock off the whole gonadal through a, an embolization procedure, and, and that sometimes will take care of it. So there are a couple of questions on non-obstructive azospermia, and uh, similar to uh, the questions received previously about the use of hormonal optimization. So two separate scenarios. In the situation where you have a hypogonadal man with NOA, and it's hypergonadotropic hypogonadism, do you have a preferred method of medical treatment for that patient? whether it be a CIRM, an aromatase inhibitor, or, or HCG, or some combination? Mm -hmm. So if it's hypergonadotropic hypogonadism, i.e. their pituitary is working well, it's kicking out a ton of FSH, their FSH is high, um, Clomid isn't going to work as well in that setting um, because for its mechanism of action to work, it has to stimulate the increase of gonadotropins to stimulate the testis to produce more testosterone. So in that setting, you may um, be better served by using uh, HCG and HMG if needed, um, even though those are more invasive and more expensive because uh, they're injectable, um, but that may allow for delivery of those directly to the testis and an impact um, uh, intertesticular uh, testosterone levels and spermatogenesis there. Um, if the patient's FSH is not severely high, um, but they, then you can use Clomid um, to help raise testosterone levels and that may kind of normalize their axis a little bit and facilitate you know, spermatogenesis that way. Then staying with NOA, if you have a patient whose testosterone level is normal and you're proceeding with a microtessy, what is your personal preference in regards to do you try to stimulate that patient or not? And if so, then what is your choice of uh, medication in that instance? Mm -hmm. I think if the gonadotropins are normal and testosterone is normal, then I don't um, think that there's much benefit. I don't I don't know in other practices what what other people do, um, but I think that you know sometimes I have if the testosterone is sort of borderline low or if they have symptoms of hypogonadism, then sometimes I'll start Clomid to try to optimize beforehand. But um, usually, if the hormone profile is normal, um, then adding more hormones isn't going to do much. So there was a, a question or a comment on turid and specifically on hemostasis. What's the role of cut versus coagulation and how, how much of coagulation can you minimize just with the use of a Foley catheter for hemostasis? Um, all good questions. Um, I think it would sort of be case by case. Um, you know, if you only have to take a couple of swipes right at the Vero, then you shouldn't have too much bleeding and you should be able to predominantly use cuts. 
You can certainly use a little bit of spot welding with coag if you have something that's definitely oozing, sort of like you would do for a, a terp, you know, but the prostate is really vascularized, so that's kind of a different scenario. Um, but obviously you want to limit your cautery because you don't want to occlude what you just unroofed. Um, so, but I think for small amounts of bleeding, you probably can get away with a catheter. Um, some will leave a catheter just like immediately post-op and take it out of the PACU. Some will leave it in overnight. Um, I don't know that you need to do prolonged catheterization, but um, that's, a, that's a good question. You sort of have to be mindful of that, you know, case-by-case -case basis. <laughs> There was uh, a combination of questions on the penile vibratory stimulation or the electrical ejaculation. There was a comment on prepping the bladder. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Is that more so a reference to urine alkalinization and optimizing yeah. the bladder volume? And if so, uh, in any details or specifics on that? Yeah, so to optimize the bladder, um, you can drain the bladder beforehand, like Dr. Smith mentioned in his talk, um, you know, less urine is better for when you're trying to collect a specimen for, from rich grade ejaculation because um, the more urine you have, the more dilute your semen specimen. Um, so bladder empty, um, and then you can alkalinize the urine beforehand. Some will instill the bladder with a small amount of uh, buffer, that the same buffer that the embryologist would take your specimen and preserve your specimen in, um, which has uh, just a, a compound of factors that promote, um, keep the sperm alive while they're processing it. Um, so you can instill some in the, a small volume of that in the bladder and then catheterize the bladder afterwards to, um, to retrieve that specimen. Um, for a lot of these guys, uh, they may have autonomic dysreflexia anyway, so having the bladder empty beforehand will help to uh, remove any sort of noxious stimuli that could compound the AD response during the procedure. There were uh, a number of questions about the diagnosis and approach to epididymal or intratesticular obstructions. Can you talk a little bit, and I think this came up during the discussion of vasography, can you talk a little bit on, first, what are the signs of uh, an epididymal or an intratesticular obstruction, specifically on the semen analysis? So I'm not about an intratesticular obstruction. Um, if because there are so many tubules in the testis that haven't yet coalesced into a single tubular system, it would be pretty difficult to have something that was causing an obstruction in the testis itself. Um, from an epididymal obstruction standpoint, um, it's just going to be things that you would find that you know, would normally su su suggest an obstruction, you know, um, low sperm counts, azospermia, that sort of stuff. Usually they have a patent contralateral, uh, yeah, contralateral side, so um, your counts may be just slightly low if affected at all, um, but uh, usually it's a, it's a concentration uh, thing rather than a volume or a pH thing, which would be further downstream. 
Uh, I think we have a couple of more minutes. So there was there was uh, more questions. If we go back to varicocele, since that seems to be one of the most common surgeries for uh, for male infertility, if you have a patient with bilateral uh, grade two varicoceles, normal normal semen analysis, but has had unexplained fertility, specifically with uh, DNA fragmentation changes, uh, what is the role of varicocele repair in patients with DNA fragmentation? I think you can do it. I think it's indicated. Um, it helps to improve that aspect of the semen analysis and also can improve the overall environment and reduce the reactive oxygen species in that environment for sperm production. Um, and, you know, I tell patients that we just don't know what kind of response they'll have. We think it will probably help, but hard to really predict from patient to patient, but I think it's indicated in that setting. Would you say that that also holds true for a patient with a varicocele uh, in which the couple has had recurrent failures with assisted reproductive technology, like for instance, for the IUI? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's worth trying in that setting too. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.